five clinical trainees and four clinical trainees, this is Well-Rounded. Your hosts today are Dan Arteaga and Isabel Rosenthal. This installment of our COVID-19 series explores what happens when misinformation goes viral. Dan and Isabel talk with Renee DeResta, Technical Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. She studies how narratives spread online, from computational propaganda to pseudoscience conspiracies in the anti-vaxxer movement. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Hi, everyone. This is Dan with Well-Rounded. We're very lucky today to have Renee DeResta speaking with us. She's the technical research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about misinformation and disinformation online as it relates to COVID-19. Renee, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Renee, what exactly do you do? Because this is a world (laughs) that is totally different from the world of medicine that Isabel and I are Uh, most familiar with? Yeah, so I look at how narratives spread online. I think that's the simplest way to put it. Um, I've done work on state actors in the past, so I did some of the research uh, for the Senate Intelligence Committee on Russian interference, looking at how those narratives spread and how um, influence operations work. I have a pretty long research past looking at the anti-vaccine movement, in particular domestic American conspiracy theorists and how those narratives spread. We basically just try to understand how information moves online, how it gets picked up, how it gets incorporated, um, how propaganda influences people, how people participate in the sharing of uh, highly angled or manipulative information at times. So, Renee, I think, you know, for us in the medical profession, obviously the coronavirus has been a novel pandemic in so many ways, but I think the way in which we're processing information has been very different. It wasn't a thing that we were really talking about as young doctors in training until the end of February. And these medical journals and the CDC and WHO that we're so used to getting all of our information from suddenly didn't seem like the most current information sources. Can you tell us from your perspective where and when was the first time that you heard about the coronavirus? It was really early on. It was in um, early January timeframe from people who were big China watchers and were just paying attention to manufacturing dynamics and what was happening in Wuhan and a number of other areas related to that. So actually just techies who were following along with Chinese stories and uh, putting them out on Twitter. Um, As far as seeing them in the information environments, one of the things we look at at Stanford is actually state media communications. And so we happened to have a project looking at the Taiwan election, which ended on January, uh, January 20th, I think, 2020. And all of a sudden, all of those sources that we had been following, those media sources, were also talking about the coronavirus. And then my anti-vaccine groups that I pay attention to began to talk about the coronavirus from the standpoint of, uh-oh, this disease in China is going to be used as justification for a mass world vaccination campaign. It had hit the media environment outside of the U.S. uh, and also some kind of small clusters of tech chatter uh, communities pretty early in January. So this is fascinating to me because uh, your life revolves a lot around um, how the anti-vaxxer community spreads misinformation online. Um, And, you know, this is just a perfect example of, you know, there's, there's been unreliable medical information online far before coronavirus existed. 
Why do you think it's so easy for inaccurate or misleading information to become prevalent on the internet? Well, sometimes it's that the persistent communities that share it, you know, the Facebook groups and things, there are a lot of groups um, that exist for anti-vaccine activism. Uh, they began back in around 2015. In California, we had SB 277, uh, the law to eliminate vaccine opt-outs. And you really started to see a lot of the evolution in messaging from them. It moved really from vaccines cause autism and, you know, kind of toxin-related type conspiracies to vaccines are an overreach on my personal liberties. And when that began to happen, when that shift into politicizing through more like libertarian, or at the time it was the Tea Party uh, dynamics came into play, you started seeing the appeal of those narratives really cross-pollinate into groups that were actually not remotely interested in vaccines as a concept before. And you don't have very much in the way of like counter efforts, right? Most people who vaccinate their children, nothing happens. They go on with their lives and they don't get up in the morning to tweet about it or to start a Facebook group about it. It's just a very routine thing. And so you really have this asymmetric passion uh, on the other side where the people who feel wronged or are deeply suspicious are constantly putting out content to try to, you know, wake up the sheeple, um, to try to make them think a certain way about vaccination or pharmaceuticals or any other range of related medical topics. Cancer quackery is a big one, too. Um, there's not very much in the way of a counter to that. So it sounds like the anti-vaxxer movement really found its footing in this grassroots campaign, so Facebook groups, blog posts. Is this the same way that information and narratives have spread with regards to the coronavirus? Because it certainly feels like governments and other large organizations have taken a lead in shaping the public discourse on the pandemic. Yeah, this is a really interesting situation with coronavirus in particular. So, uh, yes, there has always been this, what we call kind of like bottom-up grassroots chatter, right? The conspiratorial communities, the sort of fever swamps of the internet where these ideas come out of. That's not unique to America either. That is a global phenomenon. If you go and you look at the communications around Zika, you'll see a lot of the Monsanto did it, Gates did it. You know, these uh, bioweapon type narratives are very, very old, um, recurring themes that come up in the bottom-up conspiracy communities constantly. But what's interesting about coronavirus, particularly in the case of China, is that you have a situation where the response of the governments, and this is a global phenomenon, has become something that's both a geopolitical power game in terms of what they project outward to, uh, you know, to kind of reinforce their standing in the world. Uh, the other area in which it's particularly acute for them, though, is how they are viewed by their domestic constituents. And so in the case of China, massive unrest and complaining uh, around the government being too slow to act. And what we see that manifest as is we see a really deep concerted effort by Chinese state media to regain control of the narrative. And so these origin stories, did it come from a lab? Was it a bioweapon? That's actually not unique to the U.S. media environment. We actually see that in China. But in China, the villain is someone in the U.S., specifically in Fort Detrick, who came and brought the virus to China uh, to Wuhan during the World Military Games in November. And so the theory that state media posits there and that very high-ranking kind of blue-check Twitter accounts belonging to Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials, they're putting out this idea that did the virus really originate in Wuhan at all or did a foreigner bring it over? 
if a foreigner brought it over, then the state is at least a little bit like kind of exculpated from any bad handling uh, because this was something that somebody did to China as opposed to something that originated in China and the government uh, did not handle as well as it could have. So, Renee, this classic story of misinformation happening in times of crises, how do you think this affects the public's understanding of a crisis? Sure. So there's, you know, there's always been propaganda. There's always been misinformation. The way that the Internet is unique is I would say they're the volume, right? So everyone is a content creator. You can write whatever post you want, and it has a chance of reaching massive numbers of people. Uh, the second is virality, meaning you become part of the sharing process as well. Even if you're not writing your own posts, people drive narratives today. This isn't all just top-down broadcast media, you know, telling the people what to think. This is regular people sharing the thing that is most appealing to them. And so that virality really is a core kind of component. And then velocity, which is the idea that the information is moving so much faster Uh, particularly in the case of coronavirus, the entire world is paying attention to the same topic. That is very, very rare, almost unheard of. You know, it's actually uh, kind of remarkable as an opportunity to study how narratives spread because the entire world is writing about, thinking about, and talking about this topic. So it's very different than the kind of slower, more top-down media environments uh, in, you know, past kind of information revolutions like the television or the radio or the printing press where it was still kind of ultimately centrally controlled. So the internet really democratizes propaganda uh, and allows people to become an integral part in spreading it. Thanks for such an excellent explanation of what I've always kind of felt about the internet but haven't necessarily been able to explain. Sometimes you just go online and it's just such a cacophony of different arguments and positions. I guess my question for you is, what is the end result of having so many competing voices online? As for the question of, is it better to have more voices? That's a really interesting question that relates a lot to how we curate information. Because when you have a glut of information, it doesn't mean that the best voices are somehow automatically going to rise to the top, right? The platform algorithm has to decide what to show you. And for anyone who doesn't realize this, (laughs) the algorithm is ranking everything. It's not, you know, a lot of times that's framed as some sort of politicization or, you know, they're censoring one type of political community and upranking another. That's not really how it works. It's really much more rooted in engagement. Uh, Something that is sensational or exciting begets more shares and the algorithm pushes it into more people's feeds. It's, it's not a wisdom of the crowds model. It's just like consensus of the most liked, right? This is the thing that most people find appealing and they're sharing it. And so when the algorithm is trying to decide what to surface for people, it goes and it latches onto that. There is not so much a notion of authoritativeness. So while you can have a lot more voices, and that means that you get, you know, just much higher variance, right? You get a lot of voices that are fantastic that we really want to surface, you know, medical experts, frontline doctors, those sorts of folks. But then you also get the grifters and the conspiracy theorists. And the question is, who's producing the most engaging content that the algorithms are going to surface? This is fascinating. Um, This is a world that we, you know, know about in passing because we all interact with the Internet, but we don't deal with it and, you know, at work like, like you do. So there's all this unreliable information on the Internet. 
Can we ask you, where do you go to find reliable information on the internet? Who do you trust? What people, what organizations, what websites? We've talked about the bad. Can we, let's talk about the good for a little bit. Yeah, so I, um, I'm on Twitter constantly. That's really my main uh, source, of <laughs> source of information. Um, but I follow a lot of people from a huge, huge range of political perspectives and backgrounds. One of the things Twitter's really tried to do actually on that front is um, help people find more medical experts during this time by giving them what's known as like the blue check label. The blue check labels, it's supposed to just be a verification of your identity, but because it's become kind of a proxy for a lot of people of, of an authoritative or worthwhile account, uh, they have been trying to give more doctors those kind of verification badges to let people know that they're actually taught, you know, following somebody who really does work at Mount Sinai, that kind of thing. So I think Twitter's been great. And then through Stanford, I get access, of course, to, to journals, which has been immensely helpful, just really trying to see what people are putting up uh, in more peer-reviewed, verified communities. I think it's important to just follow a lot of different sources that have a lot of different perspectives, particularly on the political stuff. On the health stuff, I feel like it's more important to follow reputable experts, and, uh, and that's where I tend to, to lean. So going back to Twitter, kind of trying to validate clinical voices. This has kind of been a weird time for clinicians where there are like these medical superstars on Twitter and, you know, being interviewed for newspaper articles. And how do you think a physician should use the internet to best spread information? What is the best way? Yeah, it's really tough. I think it's, um, first of all, I think a lot of people don't realize that you're always just sort of like one famous person's retweet away from a viral moment, <laughs> uh, which means that if, God forbid, you know, you have said something wrong that is amplified, like you find yourself in the, you know, uh-oh, kind of, uh, how do you roll that back? Um, you know, and so there, so there is that, that interesting dynamic that anyone anywhere can all of a sudden become internet famous. Yeah, I think that many physicians have generally avoided the public eye because it might be perceived as like inappropriate or unprofessional and they don't want to stick their foot in their mouth. Yeah, you know, and back in 2015, when we were watching this dynamic play out with the California vaccine law, you know, Berkeley School of Public Health asked those of us who worked on, you know, trying to get it passed, just as I was just a grassroots mom who was doing it at the time. Um, you know, they were like, should we get more of our students onto Twitter. And it was a really interesting question because I felt like, well, surely they've got, you know, more important things to do than tweet. Um, <laughs> but five years later, <laughs> I feel like the answer is really yes. And that's because there is such a dearth of authoritative counter content out there. And so it really is, you know, people do still have a high degree of trust in medical professionals, maybe not the World Health Organization, maybe not the CDC. You know, there's a lot of challenges with institutional and kind of quasi-governmental agencies and entities at this point where depending on which political tribe you're in, you either believe them or you don't. But there's still a lot of trust in pediatricians and physicians and frontline workers. And so I think that that perspective is just so key to have in the public conversation right now, particularly as we get to uh, real deep concerns people have about when to reopen and how. You know, there's not a lot of people who really believe that our government is on top of things at the moment. And so, you know, I know that I'm, you know, I have little kids and I'm expecting a third in August and I don't know whether to send my child back to school if it opens in July, you know, right. <laughs> like what is going to happen with my newborn, you know? So I am trying to find who are the authoritative sources that can help me 
decide what kinds of risks make sense for my family, right? And I, I think that that huge percentages of the American public uh, really acutely feel that right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's such a little part of our medical training is thinking about how to speak to the public or, you know, speak to an audience greater than one patient who you're interacting with at a time. Um, And so the whole way that medical professionals sort of think about conveying information is being challenged right now. And I think this will change the future of medical training in some ways that physicians are becoming more general public health experts to their friends, to their families, and now on places like Twitter. Yeah, it feels like almost it's part of our professional or maybe even civic duties to get online and help spread the truth when it comes to um, medical discourse in this fashion. But even the truth is so confusing where we're changing our clinical protocols every couple of days for these uh, novel coronavirus patients. And it's probably going to be years where we truly understand what therapeutic drugs or trials were actually working and what didn't work. And I think that's also a confusing place to be. Well, thank you for doing the good work that you're doing. Thank you. (laughs) I think Isabel and I are going to go on to Twitter. (laughs) um, Isabel, is that a wrap? I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much. 